0: one, basic hip.
1: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The show is sponsored by Matt Rock, our first official sponsor, and is available for free online at TheJazzSession.com and also in iTunes and using an RSS reader. And you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find all of those links at the I'm recording this intro on Thursday so you know about 4 4 days or so before you're hearing it on Monday the 4th of July and at this moment the momentum certainly seems to be building in the membership campaign which as i have said to you on and off uh, during the course of this campaign i always suspected would happen based on my public radio experience where it starts off with a bang and then there's nothing it's a desert And then at the end, everybody realizes, oh, oh, it's almost over, and they all come in as members, which is fantastic and exactly the way things need to happen. So uh, let's thank people who have joined since I thanked the last batch of people, and that includes uh, Craig Thompson, Timothy Betts, uh, my friend and uh, musician Jill Knapp, who is part of the Industrial Jazz Group and many other bands, Hot Breakfast, Uh, James Osborne, a guitar player from uh, from Canada, but he lives in Australia, who just joined. I think I've already thanked Chris Kelsey publicly, but if not, thank you, Chris Kelsey, and he's been on the show. Uh, So things are definitely cranking along here. I think we're up to, as I record this intro, up to 56 members, which means we need 44 more by show number 300 on August 11th. My thanks to the Respect Sextet – oh, I'll just say about the membership thing, by the way. You can become a member for as little as 10 bucks. but actually people now have started joining at some of the higher membership levels, which while it's absolutely fine if you join at the $10 level, uh, it's – to be totally honest, even better for the continued – continuation of the show, <laughs> the continued continuation of the show. Thank God it's not a grammar show is all I can say. It's even better for the continuation of the show, obviously, if you join at higher levels because the more income comes into the show, the easier it is for me to survive and therefore make it. But again, absolutely 10 bucks a month or $110 a year, which are the, uh, the kind of introductory to membership levels, are completely fine. Uh, just do what you can afford. So anyway, I was saying thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. And uh, Josh Rutner from the Respect Sextet is a member, which is, you know, when you think about it, a little ridiculous given that they've given me this music for free to use for four and a half years and I've never paid them a dime, which is despicable, uh, but is also the reality of this program. So it's amazing that they're then after giving me the music to use on the show for free for four and a half years that Josh would then give me money. Too. But uh, that's that's the kind of community that uh, the Jazz Session operates in. It's pretty amazing. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo and has kept it looking sexy for four and a half years. And he is online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Starting today, July 4th, or this week more accurately, the show goes back to two times a week, uh, which will help me maintain my sanity. And also because I've finally caught up with the Enormous number of interviews I did when I first moved back to New York and I just went nuts with the interviews Uh, I was doing you know five a week six a week It was just crazy because I was kind of like a kid in a candy store You know if you interview jazz musicians for a living or for whatever it is that I have out of this Then coming to New York again is You know the biggest candy store there is everybody is concentrated here or comes through here And I had access to so many people that I just did tons and tons of interviews And I needed to catch up, and so for May and June, the show was three times a week, which is way too many for you to listen to and way too many for me to produce and all that stuff. Uh, So, you know, over the summer, now that it's slowing down again, take some time and go back through May and June, and uh, I'm sure there's probably some people that you just didn't have time to get to uh, that you might enjoy listening to. But starting this week, we're back to two times a week, and we'll keep that going through August 11th, at which point uh, we'll all know how the membership campaign went. And then we'll either have another show, number 301, or uh, we'll say a, a fun and bittersweet farewell. But I'm starting to think that that farewell may not be in order, given the number of memberships that are coming in now uh, each week. My guest today is the saxophonist Jim Snydero. He's got a new CD called Interface, and uh, here's the opening track from that. My guest is composer and saxophonist Jim Snidero. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks Thank for Thank you here.
2: very much, Jason.
1: Uh, the new album is called Interface. Maybe we can start right off with the title, which is kind of a loaded word in the in the 21st century. It seems to imply a lot about how we move through the world and how we deal with other people, both in person and electronically and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So can you talk a little bit about the title? And there's a track... Uh, that's but the title you.
2: selection and uh interface, you know, it's a kind of a I just like the word somehow. It it has a ring to it and it also means to connect, you know, and um I can see that in music uh uh being very applicable and uh you know the 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 guys on the recording we have were were very uh like-minded with the music. So I felt that uh you know, it was a good title, but the whole thing with the recording is really based around, um, the group being very, um, cohesive and, you know, having a kind of musical understanding and grounding that's similar.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's certainly apparent in the playing and, and perhaps nowhere more so than in the, in the hookup between you and, and Paul Ballenberg, mm. who, uh, mm. you know, sounds fantastic on this record and on, on every record in my opinion. Uh, can you talk about why you think you two are such a, such a good fit?
2: Well, first off, he's a very good comper. He's got good ears. He's got a tremendous amount of experience. Obviously, he's been with Joey D for years and years. And I met Paul I guess 20 years ago, something like that. He was living in Washington, D.C. for a short time. And, uh, we worked at a club called the One Step Down, which is a club down in D.C. So that was in the early 90s. And we hooked up again in, uh, New York with, uh, playing with Mike Ladon up at Smoke on Tuesday nights with his organ group when I'd often subbed for Eric Alexander when, uh, he wasn't there with Mike and Paul was up there subbing for Peter Bernstein. So,
1: and that led to your, uh, tipping.
2: That's right. right? The organ record. That's right. With Paul and uh, Mike Ladon and Tony Reedus, who unfortunately passed away. And Tony was the drummer up there often as well. So it was basically, I was just taking the band from smoking. (laughs) We, We were recording, but, um, one thing I liked about Paul that I think would work well for me is that he 's got he 's got a very flexible style like he's uh, he doesn 't play overly straight ahead and he 's not a real electric guy either he 's right in the middle somewhere and he can do just about anything and he 's got a sound that 's a little bit different to his guitar is a little bit smaller than a lot of jazz guitar players and um you know, uh, I just thought that we were like minded again about the concept. And then the third thing is or the last thing is is that for this record, he was the only guy that I knew that was a great jazz guitar player that also really played the acoustic guitar so beautifully. So it was a perfect fit uh for the recording.
1: Yeah, well you talk about uh the the kind of sound environment on this record and the what you were going for compositionally to make use of it. Or maybe that's in the opposite direction.
2: <laughs> no, I I was uh when I uh, did Crossfire, which was the recording before this one, um, there was one piece that I recorded uh, that was called uh, One for You, um, and it is a bossa nova, and I thought, ah, let's Paul plays acoustic guitar, let's try that. As soon as I heard that in the studio, I said, that's the sound I'm looking for. I, I loved that delicate, warm, uh, ancient sound almost, and it, it just kind of mixes so well with the alto saxophone mm-hmm. too the sonority and the color is is very it matches very well so i decided on this one that i'd like to write more music for acoustic guitar and i honestly had i'd been able to figure out how i would how i could write an entire record for acoustic guitar i would have done it but i i really love to swing you know and uh, Paul and I decided that that probably, and I knew that it, that probably wasn't going to sound as convincing as really good electric guitar sound on swing. At least I'm not hearing that yet. So the acoustic guitar, the, the, yeah, the acoustic guitar pieces are more straight eighth or a triplet figure, a little uh, Latin tinged sometimes. And, um, uh, you know, I was very specific, specific about voicings that I wanted on the guitar and that kind of thing. Of course, I've talked to, uh, paul about that and deferred to him as well but i was looking for a different sound but still keeping it just a guitar trio and that's another advantage of guitar as as opposed to piano a piano is a piano i mean it it sounds the way it does every person sounds different on a piano of course but if you're in the studio and you have the piano player there it's going to sound that way for the whole recording sure yeah so with a guitar though of course they've got all their little tricky switches and pedals and stuff and you can hear on the tune fallout uh that paul i wanted him to use distortion on that so um we actually it's one of the only times i've ever done this where i've had him over i had him overdub on the head in the vamp part after my solo both um the figure that i have written for the bass and and guitar but then he was kind of putting these sounds over top clouds of chords and things with a little bit of distortion and then when he goes into the solo it's really a distorted guitar that is a huge contrast obviously to acoustic guitar nylon string guitar at that so you get a a wide palette of, of color with the guitar
1: What impact does playing with a guitarist generally and an acoustic guitar in particular have on your soloing, for example? Well,
2: you know, just look at the guitar and then look at the piano. The guitar is this teeny little thing, and it's relying on an amplifier generally. A piano is this big piece of furniture with a lot of sound and color coming out of it. guitar only has six strings, and generally, guitar players, when they comp, comp with three notes. Or maybe four notes, something like that. Piano often is more than that, so there's a more compressed range to the sound. It's a it's a more um, um, biting sound usually too. The electric guitar and uh, guitar players can play more rhythmically and sound good. In other words, you wouldn't hear a piano player, for instance, go did it did it dot dot da dot 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 those are shorter kinds of notes. But a guitar player could probably really sound that way because the, uh, the uh, how can I say it, the percussiveness of the attack and the ability to cut off right away is more accurate, I guess I would say, on the guitar. That's the way I hear it anyway. I mean, some people probably would disagree with that. but And then when they are doing that, of course, there's more space. A lot of times guitar players leave more space then piano's pianos have a tendency to comp fill up the sound where guitar players um let things ring and let space go by so that does change the way that you play sometimes sometimes it can it, you can feel a little bit uncomfortable because there's nothing going on sometimes behind you when you're used to a piano player like it it's definitely uh, you have to uh, adjust. I, I remember in uh, in uh, December, Jan- uh, November and December, I was on tour, tour in Germany, and uh, Belgium and Spain. It was with the piano trio. I came back, and a couple of days later, I went with Ballen back to Vancouver to the Jazz Cellar uh, to play there, and the sound difference was really stark. And I just had to regroup for a second because you do play differently and. Uh, I can't really, I wouldn't say that you're more careful, but I feel like I'm more aware of what's going on behind me with a guitar player than with a piano player because piano players, in other words, sometimes it's almost like a drone back there because they're always filling up the sound. Where a guitar, it's in and out, so you're more aware of the background.
1: Do you find that your tendency then when you're playing is to try to replace that empty space or to let the empty space be?
2: Both, both. Sometimes I, I was talking to Neil Tesser on my liner notes for Crossfire, the one before, and sometimes it makes me want to play less because I start playing more rhythmic and let that, that um, you know, back and forth between the guitar be uh, a different way to communicate. You wouldn't normally do that with a piano player, you know, but sometimes, um, especially if, you play less and then the guitar player fills in at the right spot that can be very it just adds these different levels of um complexity to the sound and 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 when you listen to the record 4 5 6 times when someone's doing that right it's just a surprise and it's really it will never happen like that again of course sure. either so it's that's very exciting yeah.
1: <laughs> In, uh, I think it's in uh, Ted Pankin's liner notes for this record where you, uh, he, he and you talk about, uh, a different approach to the way you want your music to sound. This is an album of your compositions exclusively. And, uh, I remember the phrase warm jazz mm-hmm. appears. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that
2: idea? Well, first off, this is the first recording that I've done in 20 years where I've done all original music. I felt like, Honestly, I wasn't completely confident about uh, having a recording entirely my own music and being able to s- sustain interest and, and, you know, just both intellectually and emotionally be able to sustain it from the beginning to the end where I was satisfied. And so uh, I, have, I've, I really enjoy playing standards. I did for many, many years, and most of the records I've done in the past, I think this is my 16th record, and there's only one other one where it's all original music and that was in the early 90s and um i've always enjoyed that uh, that contrast on recordings too to do standards and uh you know i think listeners like that as well it's something that they can uh they're familiar with and they can grab onto but on this one i really felt like uh i just wanted it to be a statement from the top from top to bottom and i had been working hard on Coming up with new types of compositions and I heard that acoustic guitar sound in my head and, um, so I, I, I just decided that I was able to do it this time and it, I wanted this to be a, a personal statement. The record is kind of a transition for me uh, in a conceptual, conceptual way because, um, you know, I've, I've always and I always will like to swing, you know, uh, and you can do that really well on standards. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just was not interested in doing the, the, the other people's music anymore in a, in a way. And, um, so I felt like if I was playing my own music, I could also maybe play a little bit more the way that improvise, you know, the, the back, the backdrop is my music so that maybe I could improvise in a more personal manner too. It would inspire me to be completely myself that way which is what all artists want to do eventually the the concept of warm jazz i mean it was something i've i've said a little bit here and there it's 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 more you know all of i, I can say that all of the classic guys that i've really been into over the years have that quality to their playing they're s- spiritual there's a warmth and humanity to it that is very um Attractive and I think is one of the most powerful things about music. And when I say, you know, sometimes I talk about this in the liner notes a little bit. Um, there's this tendency, there's a couple of trends now in jazz where people are, I think, trying to be a little too intellectual and too hip about certain things and in forcing influences of, um, um, Uh, what's the word dissonance or overly classical influences into music and it sounds to me it's it's to me it it does sound very cold and uh, it doesn't inspire me and it it sounds kind of pretentious in a way and uh not that i've not had those kinds of moments in my life either but i i I don't want my music to sound that way i want it to to have a, a kind of um Warmth is the best word that I can think of. And in fact, Charlie Parker talked about that, about tunes that he wanted to write in a downbeat article 60 years ago, you know. And uh, that really struck the chord with me. And I think it's kind of an overlying um, concept that I would like to always uh, have in my music. Yeah.
1: Have any insight into what uh, what lies behind the the coldness or or intellectuality that you were just talking about?
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's just a matter of um, priorities and preference—not preference, really, but maybe values. You know, and and for me, if that's not there, it's just. I don't care how, um, abstract or quote unquote hip something is. And by the way, you can play very, uh, inside and, and very vanilla and also sound very, very cold. You know, it's, it really doesn't have anything to do so much with, um, dissonance or, or, or abstraction or anything like that. It's, it's more a quality that is being projected in whatever you play. And, um, You know, it's like I said, I think that some people just are trying to be so hip that they kind of miss the point about what really music, for me anyway, is about, and what I want to project uh, when I play and when I write.
1: To some degree, this idea has been coming up on the show a lot recently, uh, in part because There's been a a fairly long-running now, I guess, 7 weeks series of interviews with the guys in the band The Cookers, um, most Mm -hmm. of whom, with with two North Texas alumni exceptions, Mm -hmm. are guys in the generation before yours. Uh, And then the other night, I interviewed all at one time. Um, William Parker, Muhammad Ali, David S. Ware, and Cooper Moore. And, you know, those are guys with, between them, like 150 years of experience. <laughs> and, and so the question that I've been asking, though, is, is what you're talking about, is that that warmth and expressiveness and connection, is that necessarily a function of age? And the reason that I have been asking that question is because a lot of the people that we kind of revere, when we think about the canon of jazz musicians, a lot of those records are made when those guys were like 19, 20, 21, you know, and many of those guys died in their early 30s or mm-hmm. mid-30s. And so I wonder, is it something else about a musician other than just the process of maturing that creates what you're talking about, that that connection, that that warmth, that spirituality?
2: No, no, because there are plenty of young guys that have that in their playing. You know, it's, it's a matter of... Um, Uh, first off, of direction and influence when you're younger. You know, who you really like to listen to, what your teachers suggest that you listen to, and that your exposure to a lot of music and people that point out to you really important facets of someone on a recording. It's easy to gloss over some things that are the most profoundly important on a recording because you're trying to hear how he's playing a d flat on a c major chord or something like that. It's very easy for guys that are and I've done this too where you're learning how to get a certain thing together when you're younger and you're just trying to get as hip a line together or a melody together and when it comes down to it and you play it it really doesn't mean anything because you're first off a lot of times they're not really feeling it or in the moment it's more from their brain than from their heart and uh there's not this overlying um sense of the sound in the group when you're playing and i i'm very 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 aware of that when i pick musicians to play with i i'm much more interested in um you know a feeling of humanity and warmth and and um togetherness than hipness. It's, or, hipness is the wrong word. It's, it's uh, you know, I guess maybe hip is a, a good word. It's, a, you know, but uh, some p- people confuse sometimes hip with being out or abstract. Man, you listen to Miles Davis on some of the, his most outside music or even his inside music, He'll just hold a note sometimes, and it might be the root, and it's nothing abstract or strange or dissonant about that, but it's perfect, and it's really, really gets to the essence of style and, and soloing quality. On the other hand, he might be playing on an F blues and play one of the most abstract notes on the F blues. And it still has that exact same feeling, though. If you sat down and you were a musician and you're going, what is that note? And you figure out he's playing, you know, a raised fifth on, on the chord and, and the whole band's probably turning around at him. But it, the way he played it with, he played it with such conviction and, and, and warmth that it's hip either way.
1: You see? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Miles has done, like, the, the the classic example I can think of is, uh, raising the final note of in your own sweet way of the head a half step. And that mm. then becomes the way it's, like, transcribed in the real book and, and everything. Right. It, becau- know, it, it becomes the, way it was the written, tune. But it becomes the tune. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you mentioned, uh, teachers a few moments ago and, and you're someone who's been very involved in education. Is there, uh, through the writing of books and, and through teaching, is there a, a, a means of, Focusing students' attention on these ideas.
2: Uh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, when I, uh, I don't teach as much as I used to, but uh, when I was more active in teaching, I would, you know, expose, say I was, uh, you know, had an alto saxophonist that was taking private lessons with me. I would give him, um, you know, a recording of, uh, six or seven different alto players doing four or five cuts and, uh, tell them, Check all these guys out and see, tell me what you really think about each one of them. And sometimes, you know, also I would hear someone and they would have, um, say a great sound, but poor articulation. So I'd say, check out this and see how he's articulated. You know, you always, as a teacher, you adjust, but, um, I think it's very, very important to have values as a teacher and, and, and to be flexible with your, your way of, of presenting those to students, but at the same time trying to point out to them why things sound so great because a student that is motivated and serious and hardworking is going to delve into that and try to figure out what you're saying. If they just dismiss it more than a few times, then you have to start wondering if they're open enough to really deal with growing as a musician, yeah. Yeah. Can you look
1: back in your own uh, musical upbringing and find people or moments that really tied you into this uh, this way of listening and looking at music that you're talking about?
2: Not, not specifically. I mean, th- that kind of experience with me has just been an ongoing thing through my whole life as a as a musician. Um, you know, being around people. That's one of the greatest things about New York is you're around very um talented, motivated people that are exposing you to lots of different things. And so there wasn't a real eureka moment for me with uh, a saxophonist or whatever. It's just a, a compiling of data and, and information, keep going, and things, how uh, things, certain things click here or there. And then you work very hard on trying to assimilate what you're feeling, you know, either – with your own personal style, style, or if you're younger and you're still trying to get it together, you emulate. That's, there's no doubt about it. And there's no doubt about it. Everybody that I, and just about everybody that I have known over the years has done that. But as you get older, you try, or not, old, not older, but more, become more of your own stylist. Um, you try to start to capitalize on what you do best. And through, you know, through your knowledge of all the study you've had, use the techniques that other guys that were masters um, used to try to bring your own style alive. That's the trick. And a lot of people get confused about... Um, how to take influences or if you're even supposed to take influences from other people. And one of the best things I've ever seen on that is are these three articles by Chick Corea in the 1970s in Keyboard Player Magazine called The Myth of Improvisation, How to Practice, etc. And it goes way into why he transcribed and how he used that and how he's formed solos and how he uses that to be creative. And every it's a really very, very good set of articles on that.
1: as as players of uh, the generation even after me so you know kids in their teens and 20s now they're they're getting farther and farther away just in terms of time from miles davis and charlie parker and dexter gordon and mm-hmm. all the names that we could list do you think it's still increasingly important for young musicians to be tied in to that lineage
2: well, uh, yes, of course. Charlie Parker was the greatest alto saxophonist of all time. Miles Davis was probably the greatest stylist of all time. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of just technique, jazz technique, saxophone technique, jazz technique that you can learn from someone like Charlie Parker. And again, the trick is to to figure out all of that stuff and then change it. But you can't you you can't really be inside the music without um, really have gone through studying a master like that because they figured it out Or, or I guess you know what Chick said in the article is maybe you could possibly go through without ever hearing someone play or ever really studying someone play jazz and eventually figure out how to do it but you would be going down so many blind alleys and you'd be wasting so much time whereas if you just listen to the beauty of a phrase that someone that is great has done, try to figure that out and say, why did he do it that way? Once you get into the why of something, then it translates into anything. And the other thing about it is, Jason, is is that it's almost unfair in a way because those guys back then, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Train, they were working five, six nights a week, 50 weeks a year. They would go to Chicago and they'd be at the club for two months, six weeks, working six nights a week. Miles would be there and then his band would be train and cannonball and Philly Joe. And that was the band. And, and they were playing the music. Can you imagine the, the growth that you would have if you had that much of experience? So just hands-on experience of someone like that is tenfold, literally, of guys around now. And so it's just unfair in a way because yes you just have all that time of course they're genius artists but then they had so much time to work it out on the bandstand and think about it it just becomes so second nature i know if i go on tour for 3 weeks when i come home it i feel like it's so simple in right. my in my own way <laughs> You know, and then if you haven't been working in a couple of weeks, you start to think about things a little bit more and things – it's just like anything. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So when you go to those guys, you're going to someone that's been doing it more than anybody else. So that's why, man.
1: Well, I mean that's a natural segue into this question, which is uh – uh uh david weiss was on the show a couple of weeks ago as part of this cookers series and he described this this era that's gone by as kind of an untouchable zenith Like no one will ever play as well as those guys played and and i'm paraphrasing but pretty closely i think and you know the best we can do is to get as close as we can to, to being like that and maybe another genius will come along but but maybe not well, and then, i wonder i mean that, which seems to me that's it's a depressing viewpoint.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, it, it's going to be difficult to play as good as those guys because of experience. But, you know, if you bring your own experience into own personal experience, not work experience, but your own life into the music um, and really work hard at it, you can be. As good as anybody, I think. I really think. And it, and it's not, you know, someone could say, well, yeah, but how are you going to get as great as tone as, as Coltrane? Or how are you going to be able to play as fast as train or something like that? Maybe you come up with the deepest music that's slow as possible, you know, and maybe the sound in one sense, in the classic sense of balance of color and timbre is not as good as trains, but maybe on another on another level no one else sounds like that because you're truly sounding like yourself and you're bringing something into the sound that is just as good it's just different now i don't i don't want to confuse two things here though because there are there are standards of these kinds of things like sound and technique that kind of thing that are have been around for a very very long time and there are, you know there are sounds that are better tone i mean that are better than others. I mean, it's a matter of um, the beauty of the sound and the balance of the, the, the uh, color of the sound and um, all these things that come in to make a tone really, really profoundly deep. So that, I think, in one way is definable. But when you get to a certain level where you do have those kinds of, qualities to your sound then it becomes a more personal and abstract thing about you know uh, what do you
1: do with it <laughs> what do you <laughs> do
2: with it and and what does it mean in that moment it would be looking like looking at a painting of matisse's and picasso and they both have red used red on one color i mean one painting and another these guys know exactly what they're doing, obviously. So is that red better than that red? Right. <laughs> it could be that it's, it's, it's different in, could strike you differently on different days too. So, I, you know, I really, I'm an optimist. I don't believe that no one's going to ever play. I hope that I can. That one day I hope that I can play as good as anybody's ever played. I don't, I don't accept that I can't. It's just that uh, I know how much work it takes, how much incredible amount of work it takes. And uh, for me, that's what's that's what it's about.
1: On Interface, uh, since you wrote all of the music, I wonder, do you, do you ever find it difficult to write tunes that you find interesting to dig into as an improviser?
2: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> man. It scares me, not only as an improviser, but as a listener. I want, I want the music to sound, um, uh, fresh the hundredth time that you've listened to it. And that's a, that's a very tall order to be able to compose music like that. And again, it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be, uh, complex necessarily because I still enjoy So What? Right. (laughs) When Miles played it, you know? It's also about how the music is played because that's a sign of a great musician is you take something that is maybe not that great and you make it sound great so it's a combination of both the way that the band plays it, the tune itself and um and how deep it is um you know i i I would say that I'm not really uh I know it sounds funny, but maybe I'm not the most natural composer it's something that I have to work very hard at to try and come up with things that I think, uh, work well and are effective, Mm. you know? And, um, I, I try not to accept just anything. I think it's, you know, it's one thing to write, it's one thing to compose music. It's another thing to compose music that people want to listen to time and time again. And, uh, you know, I know when I was on the road with Tom Harrell years ago, here's a guy that works, he told me he composes every day, essentially. He's a more natural composer, I think, but he really works very hard at it as well. And we would be on an airplane and he'd have a little tablet and he'd pull it out of his bag and he'd write something down that he heard. And I said, What are you doing? And he said, I heard something and I thought that would be, you know, a good bridge on a tune later. I said, Yeah, see, now that's, that you're, you're, it's about thinking about it. Uh, you know, thinking about it all the time. Um, but comp- composing is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's just like playing. You have to practice it. You have to work on it. And for me, unfortunately, I'm more of a person that composes with a project in mind. I'm sure. not someone that just writes to write. Um, um, but I'm always thinking about the next project. So, you know, interface came out a week or two ago and I'm already thinking about, you know i'm starting to think about what i want to do next and i'll probably start writing some music uh, over the next month or two and it may be a 6 month process where i go through tunes and figure out because it's just like anything sometimes you edit on a song sometimes you throw it out you just it it just doesn't work out and you know that this you got to start over and forget it and and then sometimes you add things too and uh, it's amazing to me how I'll be playing uh, a song like, uh, well, the the tune on the record um, um Expectations has got a pretty complicated chord progression. And, you know, I'll be playing it for a while and then I'll realize something. You know what, if I change that one chord, that is going to really make a difference and sure enough it fixes what has been bothering me about that tune <laughs> from, <Right. laughs> for months And it, you're, on the other hand a tune like one by one on the record um i wrote at the piano behind me in 15 minutes it just kind of came to me one night you know so and, and that's a simpler tune too but it's got i think it's has a uh, a very effective atmosphere to it and it just kind of naturally unfolded. I didn't want that song to be complicated in any way. I just wanted it to have a certain effect. And, um, sometimes that is very difficult to <laughs> come by and other times it just comes, you know.
1: So given what you just said about the, the project-based writing, then the tunes for Interface, you wrote with this record in mind. This is not a collection of stuff that was lying around, and you said, okay, well, now I'll put it back right. together. And oh, yes.
2: Oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm just trying to think. No, there's nothing on this record that I've I've had around at all. Um, one tune on here, Apertivo, is a little bit more of a, a conventional tune, I'd say it's one of the most conventional tunes on the record, there's two or three on the record that are more conventional than the others Um, and that one I just wanted to write a bossa nova, I wasn't sure if I was going to have that on the record or not I knew that it would work with acoustic guitar of course, Um, but I I just felt, uh, I wrote that one on the road I think, when I was in Spain and um, I just started fooling around with that chord progression and and that melody, I wasn't sure if I was going to use it on the record, but um, you know with the acoustic guitar it sounded so good and uh i thought it was a nice complement to the other tunes and that's another thing about writing for a project you do you do um you do have the opportunity when you do it like that to think about moods and tempos and keys and things like that i'm very conscious of that i'm conscious of that when i do a gig i try not to do things i try to have the set flow and be interesting and and liven things up when they need to be and and quiet things down when they don't need to be when they need to be that way too and i'm very much aware of that on this record i think this record in particular has a nice flow to it you know the the tunes kind of after you've listened to um um fall out and then the and this really energetic one and then the guitar comes in with that strummed chord a cappello thing it's very very effective translation uh, transition sounds good and um you know I wasn't sure about the 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 timing exactly of the tunes but I knew that I had a nice balance of material yet You try to keep the material sounding like it's the same composer, the same band. You don't want to go so far one way, at least me. I don't want to go so, so far one way or another that the material doesn't stick together. And I think that's very, very, uh, obvious on lots of great records, including Kind of Blue, of course, or, um, Crescent or Love Supreme or any record like that. It sounds like it's the same composer, same band, similar material that, similar in the sense that, you know, uh, it, it's got, uh, it's, how can I say it? It's, it's cohesive. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. cohesive, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, we mentioned uh, Paul Ballenbeck, of course, but can you talk about the other two uh, very fine musicians?
2: Well, Paul Gill, um, I've known since hmm, 20 years about as well. It's about as long as Paul Ballenbeck, And um, he, I'm from Maryland originally and i have family still down in maryland and paul's from maryland he went to towson state i guess in the 80s and i used to use him as the bass player down in dc when i would go down there and uh then i liked his playing so much that i took him to europe when he was still living in baltimore i took him to europe i think 94 something like that on a tour and uh he moved to new york shortly after that and uh i think he's just um a very again warm sounding musician he's got he swings he really swings he's got great time uh he can play any style or tempo or anything he's just an accomplished bass player and as a matter of fact he's a very very good acoustic guitar player, hmm. yeah, I heard him pick up the guitar I'm like, Wow, so we must practice that a lot and um he's got had, had you and Paul and Paul ever played together
1: uh in the back of the the Maryland days or the D.C. days, I should say? I
2: think we did. I, I think that we probably – I mean, it's a long time ago, but um, we may have played at the One Step Down in Georgetown. I, I don't remember that for sure. Okay. Maybe in Baltimore we played. So uh, Gill is great. And McClinty I met uh, up again on Ladon's gig at Smoke about three years ago. Um, he uh, was subbing up there when I was up there. And – um I just, uh, you know, I think he's a really talented guy. He's got, um, a great feel. One of the best feels I think for a young drummer out there. Um, great sound on the drums, great technique. He went to Howard and I guess he went to Juilliard too. Uh, and he studied with Grady Tate, which is one of my favorite drummers. Uh, but he can play any style. Um, but he's got the feel of the guys that I like and, um, you know he can swing, and that that's very very. He's got great taste too. He's just a very very good drummer. And the other thing is is that I thought that he worked together with Paul Gill. That's another thing that I think most band, uh, obviously most band leaders think about is how you know how open are the bass player and drummer to each other, and are they going to work together, or they're going to be a little bit more of a um, battle. You know sometimes you get guys uh back there and they're a little bit stubborn about uh how they're going to work in the group and it might be one guy that's got a lot of experience, another guy that has a little bit less and they kind of put their foot down a little bit and that's not very helpful to the music, you know. Um so I just uh I, I think individually those guys are very much <clears throat> musicians that have the same uh how can I say the same values that I have, but they also work together we all work together well and you can i think you can really hear it on the record it's very cohesive and it sounds um, like everybody's trying to make each other sound the the other guys sound good which is very very important yeah absolutely
1: my guest is jim Snydero. the new record is called interface and it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks for coming thank you
2: jason pleasure
1: That's music from Jim Snydero and his new CD, Interface. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by our first official sponsor, Matt Rock, and presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Please do become a member. The 300th show is on August 11th, and I need 100 members by that time. And as I'm recording this intro, that means I need 44 more. But my guess is that by the time you're actually listening to this show four or five days from now, uh, you will find if you look at the website that that number has actually dropped and the number of members who've come in has increased because that seems to be what's happening just about every day for the last week or so, which is fantastic. Uh, and, again, as my, uh, my friend referred to it, it's snowballing, and it really seems to be. And thank you again also to everybody who's been tweeting about the show and uh, Facebooking the show and sending it out in their mailing lists. That is a huge help. And that's something I only started asking people to really do in a a concentrated way about a week and a half ago, and I've noticed the jump in members. So I I do think it's a combination of the campaign drawing to a close and people sensing that and the fact that uh, musicians and and non-musician friends of the show are telling people about it. Uh, It really does have an impact when you reach out to your own friends and uh, tell them about the show and ask them to support it. It really does make a difference. I also want to take a second at the end of this show, and uh, I, I should have done it at the beginning, to, uh, to particularly thank um, a few people. I already thanked Josh Rutner at the beginning, and James Shipp and Kate McGarry are two other people who, uh, since the, the very beginning of the time that I started asking for help on this show, uh, are, are two people who, without any, uh, you know, any fanfare, any desire to be thanked, and in fact without even telling me – I mean, I just kind of found out – people who've been reaching out to their own networks and asking people to support the Jazz Session and that's really amazing and uh, I really do thank James and Kate for that so that's the show for today Uh, come back on Thursday when uh, Chris Davis will be the guest and in the meantime get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session